Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless Possible. Hello and welcome to this In Isolation episode of Shameless with the warm and witty Matt O'Kine. Matt is a stand-up comedian, author, actor and podcast host. I am losing breath just talking about all those hats that he wears. You'll likely be familiar with Matt's work as the co-host of Triple J's Breakfast Show alongside Alex Dyson, which ran from 2014 to 2016. And of course, his starring role in The Other Guy on Stan, a show which he happened to write as well. In this chat, we cover it all from the impact of losing his mother at the age of 12, which he wrote about in his book, Being Black and Chicken and Chips, to exactly how he stumbled into stand-up comedy after finishing acting school. Here's Matt. Matt O'Kine, welcome to Shameless in Isolation. We are so friggin' excited to have you. Hey, thank you very much uh, for having me, Zara Michelle. It's great to be part of this um, show this series. And we are that excited to have you on whatever the hell this thing is. But what we wanted to start with is tell us where you are right now, because we are doing these remotely and everyone's in a different spot. So where are you set the scene for the listeners? I'm currently in the radio studio that we record our daily podcast from. So Alex Dyson and I have started up a daily podcast. It's called Matt and Alex All Day Breakfast. So we're in the studio right now. I'm in the studio right now sitting in the same seat that Tom Tilly sits in every day to record his podcast, which I, you know, because I'm good friends with Tom Tilly, absolutely love the man, don't want to be sharing his germs at this current time. And I'm very, you know, I'm, what I'm finding in this in this whole pandemic situation, it really is, it is like sexual partners. You know, you've got to choose your friends and you've, and it's, you've got to know, you know, I find myself not wanting to, 
hang out with other people where I'm like, oh, but they, they hang out with heaps of other people. They've got lots of friends, which means that their chances of getting it are higher and, and I don't want to catch it from them. So I won't hang out with them this weekend. So it's a bit, you know, Tom's a really social guy. He's got lots of friends. So I'm, I'm like, oh, has he been seeing He's too people? And, you He's know, too popular for you to be sitting in his seat. I know. That's it, right? That's it. I was saying to Zara the other day, it's lucky that she and I are not huggers. Like when we met up at the studio last Friday, it's lucky we do not hug each other, Zara, because otherwise there'd be a lot of germs going on we've never been those friends though we just kind of like see each other from a distance we're like we love you so much but we don't touch i love that during the celia piccola in isolation you suggested the deep bow as a greeting i think that is <laughs> i am all for bows in uh in you know soft fluffy bun form but also as an actual verb uh, different it has spelling. to be really deep though it has to be very deep at all the alternative oh, no, is we all start wearing hats and then we all start like actually physically tipping our hat you're wearing a hat today you could easily begin the trend no the whole point of me wearing a hat is to not show off my balding head so if i did that <laughs> that would defeat the whole purpose you know so i'm gonna stick with a bow and i'm not i'm a shallow bower i'm not a i'm not a deep bower i was gonna say you could wear you could have double hats if we turned into the hat, two hat people just two hats so there's a hat under the hat matt what we usually ask people when we start is what are you wasting the most time on what are you reading watching or listening to that you would recommend to somebody else who might be listening? I I don't consume that much. I tend to focus all my energy on producing. I remember Ronnie Chang sort of, we had this big talk years ago about, you know, you're either a producer or a consumer. And I find myself not being able to consume as much as I would like. If I consume anything, I, I listen to a lot of crime podcasts to, as I go to sleep. What? Um, as you yeah, go to sleep? Yeah, I often wake up. Yeah, hours, <laughs> hours of podcasts having been in my head and I, and I don't know what I've listened to. It's, it is quite scary. I'm also quite paranoid that one day I'm going to, like my headphone cords will accidentally strangle myself in my sleep, <laughs> which would be quite prophetic really if, uh, if I were to be listening to a crime podcast and then accidentally strangle myself with my own headphones and then probably my end nan, up in a, in a crime podcast myself. My nan has always told me that she listens to Shameless to fall asleep, and I'm not sure if that's the ultimate compliment or the ultimate criticism. <laughs> I think it's a compliment. It just means that she's so relaxed being, you know, hearing your voices. I, I definitely do. Yeah, so if I had to say anything, I'd say Case File Podcast. I have been thoroughly enjoying... Oh, I can't remember. There's a couple of other ones. Unresolved is one I like. I listen to Crime Junkie specifically to fall asleep because there's so many of them that you can kind of be like, ah, oh, I don't care how this you know mystery ends. I'll just fall asleep in it. So yeah, that's what I'm, I've been consuming mainly. Love it. Matt, the second question we ask everyone is what were you like as a kid? Can you tell us about your childhood? I had a pretty good childhood, I guess. I mean, I grew up in Brisbane, West Brizzy, Indrapilly, near a big sort of park, played in, played in the sort of park and bush, uh, you know, a bit, but pretty suburban upbringing. My parents split up when I was in grade two, so I was seven. And so I split my, my living between my dad and my mum's, which I, I, I preferred that setup than, uh, than when they were necessarily together, just because it was just they were both they could both be themselves instead of, you know, different people in, in, you know, in a relationship. I went to Brisbane State High, which is quite a big sort of big public school, about 2,000 kids, some really rough, some really rich. It was a nice kind of mixture of different races and cultures and affluencies. I, I was into sport. I did a lot of sport, really. 
you know, I went to, I qualified for the Queensland athletics team in high school and I just had a boy band in high school, 4.1, you know, forever will 4. they 1. remain in our, yeah, that was the name of it, 4.1. Why 4.1? What does that mean? I think, you know, I think we were borrowing heavily off uh, five at that time, to be honest. Um <laughs> Almost <laughs> not one. <laughs> uh, well, we couldn't sing nearly as well, so someone had to be the point one. And we, you know, we've argued about who that is ever since. But I'm, I, I know. Shout out to my man, Busy. <laughs> and then um, I went to drama school, and that was it. That was the end of my sort of childhood, I guess. Oh, my mum died when I was twelve as well. That was a big formative part of that, of that growing up, you know, and that sort of, I guess, changed who I was, or, or at least. Maybe didn't necessarily change who I was, but determined the person that I would become eventually once I kind of shed some of the barriers that something like that kind of puts up. Well, I was going to say, I was going to ask you about that because you wrote a novel last year and congratulations, it's being turned into a feature film, which is so exciting called Being Black and Chicken and Chips. And I read this quite searing quote of yours in an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald and you said that losing your mum did make you a different person. You said, I would have been a safe person in a cruel irony. I'm proud of the person I've become because of what's happened. Can you speak to that a little bit about what you meant? Oh, I mean... I would be such a different person. Uh, the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now, and and that is absolutely 100% following my dreams in terms of wanting to be someone who creates things and, and is an artist, I wouldn't have done it if if um, my mum hadn't passed away. I remember clearly wanting to to be in the arts and wanting to perform, wanting to create. And as you get older and people sort of tell you, oh, you know, it's too difficult, it's very competitive, you're not going to make it, you kind of start looking down safe, safer avenues. It just, it just happens years and years of it piling on top of you from when you're a kid all the way through high school. And when my mum died, I remember I kept going on that path until I realized I just wasn't these things, the school subjects I was doing, I was just doing them for other people. Like I was, I was in, I was, I was trying to do maths B because I thought that's what smart people did. And I was trying to do physics because that's what, you know, my dad would have preferred for me to do. And I, I was studying Japanese because my sister studied Japanese. And, and eventually I just realized I was doing all these things that I, that I didn't enjoy. And from that point on, I just decided to do what I wanted to do. And that was to take risks and take a chance and try and make these things. And so I I did it. And I think that my dad let me do it in a way because he was just glad that I was doing something that I felt like I had a path and that I wasn't off the rails essentially. Because, you know, I think that's always a parent's worry. But certainly when there's been an event like that, it's very easy for those kind of damages to manifest themselves in, or, you know, in unproductive and unhelpful ways. Matt, can you talk to us about what your lasting memories of your mum are? I mean, a couple of decades have passed since she died. What are your memories of her? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because like when your parent dies when you're 12, it's right on the cusp of you realising that they are an adult with lots of faults. And so she passed away just before I hit that. So I never truly got to understand a lot of her faults and also become annoyed or frustrated with them as as most teens do with their parents you know so i have a kind of weird saint what's it called sanctification or whatever it is you know mm. um when you sort of sanctify i don't i know that's not the right word but whatever um it's someone. perfect in this instance let's roll with it <laughs> so you know it's it's really interesting to be aware now of having an idea about the type of person that she probably would have been. She was a, such a caring, loving mum. I, I felt like, 
it was me and her against the world. You know, she she really looked out for me, but she let me have a lot of have a lot of freedom. If I if I were to suddenly look back on it now, I think. I think that she would have been a highly stressed person. I think she would have had stress manifest in a lot of different ways. And if you were to ask the super, oh, they're not the super spiritual like part of me, but I have, I have these sort of inclines or feelings in that I think stress may play a part in things manifestation may manifest itself in ways like cancer, mm-hmm. and so. I sort of link those two traits of hers, I guess, in a way. I have no medical. I'm, I have no medical. Uh, no, 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 but to, to back up. you up there, and I, I'm the same, but someone very close to me got cancer after a really um, stressful event, and it was actually the doctor that linked that for her to say that they are linked for sure. So I don't yeah. think it's just you. I think it's quite common. Yeah, so look, I I, I will always just love her so much and, uh, you know, miss her dearly and that's why I guess I, I tell that story in the you know the story of her passing away in the book because it was it was a the, the most formative event of my whole life and in ways I'm proud of how I dealt with it and how I got through it and including all of the bad ways that I dealt with it as well and you know I hope that other people who have gone through the same or are going through the same can connect with with my stories in that way whether they be young or old really. I think in another interview you did with The Guardian in promoting the book, you said the impetus not to cry was a big one. You had to try and fight the sadness with a lot of jokes. What is it like to be a young man and sad in a world that kind of always asks you to suppress that? Oh, I mean, I remember clearly not crying at all. And not not just like, oh, hey, I'm not crying. That's a bit weird. I remember like almost setting out to not cry through any of these deeply difficult situations that I was going through. I remember not crying at a funeral, you know, because I wanted to kind of prove to the people around me that I was able to deal with it, that I was dealing with it, that I wasn't that hurt by it. But the reality is I was so severely hurt by that that, that situation that I, I, it took me several years to realize how to change and how to let those guards down. I think there's a real tendency for guys to get to put the put the barriers up and to not realize that they're not blocking off external threats. They're actually stopping themselves from getting out. I think that's a problem that a lot of guys face. What was it in life then that made you kind of realize and want to flick the switch and want to feel and want to be able to express your emotion? Was it just growing up and maturing? Do you know what? It was drama school. I went to drama school and I went, started on the basis of like, you know, I remember watching some students going through, you do this, what's called a being workout, you know, and where you'd sit down and you just talk emotionally about your current state. You'd say, sitting here looking at you two right now makes me feel uh, honored in a way that I am uh, a guest on your show. And I am sitting in a room that makes me feel like, you know, it's a, it's a, I used to drive past these studios every day and I used to think, wow, it would be cool to have a great job in radio like that. And now I'm doing it. So I'm looking for feelings within me that, that, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm seeking that satisfaction. Do I feel it? Do I not? If I don't, then why? 
you you do that like for just hours hours and hours on a, in a day just to try and find the very crux of what your emotional state is at the time so i guess that we when you can hit that neutrality then you can find it by visiting other places you know other memories different scenarios so that you can facilitate a kind of the fake emotions that you need to act and i'd never i'd never talked about any of those things before anything like that my mom how i felt I'd never talked in those sort of, in that language. It was never, no one, you know, I I guess a lot of blame comes down to, you know, young boys and toxic masculinity and, oh, you know, can't believe the kids this young are talking like this or acting like this and blah, blah, blah. But no one had taught me at that stage how to talk in emotions. And that is something that I only realized as I, as I, yeah, when we started doing it for a university degree. I mean, it's a shame that not more men then go into comedy in order to have that experience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it should be a compulsory, throw out maths B and, you know, all these things at school. It's like <laughs> literally just sit down and talk about how you are feeling. And so <laughs> guys do not do that with each other. No way do we sit down. And talk about that. Did you often make people laugh when you were younger? Like, did you find that when you cracked a joke, it landed? Because not many people have that, not Mish nor I, but did you? When you, when you <laughs> give yourself, Sarah. Yeah, Diana. give yourself a bit of I'm, credit. I'm dragging you down with me. <laughs> um, yeah, I was a funny kid and I liked being a funny kid. And I, and I always wanted to be a funny kid. And I remember, you know, I remember making my mum laugh a lot. And that always made me very happy when I did that you know I'd always be really proud that I was able to make a joke and I was always very proud of the types of jokes I made you know trying to make sure that people were laughing well I I just it wasn't it was never by accident I guess it wasn't just because I was a goofball and slipped over all the time and did silly things it was like I would I would try to make people laugh you know for, for a reason I guess or in a calculated way so, yeah, I, I guess I'd always wanted to do comedy as well. It was like the highlight of the year was opening, going through the TV guide and seeing the Melbourne Comedy Festival gala on TV. I mean, I watched Seinfeld all the time. I had his books that I was reading, all his stand-up. I just loved comedy. So, yeah, I'd always wanted to do it. We're going to get onto the comedy in a second, but first I have a question that I just have to ask you. What was the path to you ending up on H2O just at water? <laughs> Did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I'm Laurie the Dolphin Trainer. Do you know how? And you delivered those lines so well. I watched that... the YouTube clips this morning and I was like, you know what? That is great acting. Great that... dolphin training, everything. <laughs> that show is still on. Like it, it replays week in, week out on, you know, Disney Channel and all around the world they've played that show. I've had friends in Holland sending me, you know, <laughs> messages being like, why are you in a wetsuit speaking to me in Dutch right now? <laughs> Um, (laughs) but, uh, I, that was a, that was a really, really great time in my life. To be completely honest, I think back to that time with, you know, I, there's, there's moments in your life where I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, I wonder if that particular period of my life was the best period of my life until recently when I had my daughter and stuff, I was, you know, everything's easier in hindsight, but to tell you where I was, I just moved out of home for the first time I graduated from drama school so I was living by myself with a friend on in this small two 
two-level sort of building in at the top of a hill in Milton. Because we're at the top of the hill, you could sort of look out over the whole Milton in Brisbane. And uh, we had it was this old crappy flat, but uh, we called it the penthouse because it was the it was the top floor of a two-story apartment block. It all and um, and we would <laughs> it get counts, vis- it yeah exactly. And we get visited by this you know cat that would visit us from the neighborhood, and we called him Tony Soprano. And we would and you know we would drink every night and 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 like party and and i had worked at a video store which was such a cool job back then and i didn't have to go to uni every day and i and i and i'd landed this mcdonald's commercial where i got paid like five grand for this commercial and i'd never had five grand in my life before you know and so so suddenly i start getting these gigs and i and i ended up getting this role on h2o just add water i actually went i actually went for one of the main girls boyfriend roles and I missed out on that but they said hey come and be a dolphin trainer instead which was which was I mean and that show well dolphins aren't going to save themselves Zara okay they're not going to save themselves someone's going to save Ronnie the dolphin but it was cool, I'm not sure you know? if you realized by the way do you know that it's going like I found that out a few weeks ago because it's going crazy on TikTok. All yeah, these I people saw on that. TikTok people are sharing doing... snippets. <laughs> I know. I know. See, classics never die. That's the thing. <laughs> that people, aliens in 200 years will be, uh, 2,000 years will be, will be quoting H2O. I also did Aquamarine. <laughs> no one talks about Aquamarine nearly as much. I was in Aquamarine, which is another mermaid-based show that they filmed that they did on the Gold Coast. So... <laughs> I don't know whether, you know, the mermaids are calling me or I'm calling mermaids, but it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> it's amazing kind of things to have on your resume, I have to say. <laughs> I was in Dora the Explorer as well just recently. So that there was you. cool. Yes. Really? I did one line, one line of Dora the Explorer. It's pretty oh, funny. I play, <laughs> I play teacher. I tell you what, it really does count. It's funny because um, those things, they're a big deal. When, you, when you're not an actor, it doesn't sound like it's a big deal, but people work extremely hard to get a single line of dialogue in a, in a blockbuster, you know, like in a big worldwide movie. It's something that my daughter, I'm so proud of having things, you know, cause I make a show like the other guy, which is on stand, which is, you know, about two loose units going partying and doing drugs and having sex and everything like that. And I mean, I've got a one-year-old, she can't watch that show for 18 <laughs> years, but Dora, <laughs> Dora, she can watch in like a few months, you know, and so uh, I'm I'm stoked about that gig and all of no. them. H2O, Aquamarine, I love all that stuff. It makes me really proud to have those things on my resume because it's it's just they're so it's silly and it's fun and it's what I kind of got into the whole job for. And it's guess it's versatility. Like you're absolutely right. Like as much as we are joking, it is the reason that you've been able. It's amazing that you've been able to crack an industry that is so goddamn difficult for so many people. Which leads me to comedy. Like that also is an incredibly difficult industry. Also an incredibly difficult industry to maintain work in. How did you find comedy? I mean, I know you said you loved watching the comedy festival, but how do you go from someone who likes to crack a joke and likes watching the comedy festival to saying, "Hey, I'm going to stand up in front of a hundred people and crack my jokes in front of them." Yeah, so I, when I graduated, I hit up a friend at a party and said, oh, you know, me and you should enter this raw comedy competition that I've seen online. And we were 17 at the time. And he was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And I guess I just wanted to do it as a double act because I'd be, I was too scared to do it by myself. Uh, but I missed the entries. I didn't get, I didn't get in the entry in without already closed. So I started drama school and in drama school, we had a two week module on stand up comedy. And so I wanted to get a head start 
ahead of the class. So the next year I entered raw comedy and I, I mean, I entered, I was drunk. I got home one night after a big night with friends on Caxton street or whatever. And I just bashed away the entry form and hit send. And then like four days later, suddenly, you know, you get a call being like, Hey, so just letting you know, you're, you, we got your entry and you you set next Wednesday at thingy. And then you're like, what the f***? No, no. <laughs> what was I thinking? You know, and I remember I remember sitting on my dad's couch going like, oh, I don't want to do this. Like, I, do, I just don't want to do it. But I decided to do it. I rehashed a, a speech that I'd given at uni for a subject. And then, yeah, it did my heat and told two friends about it. I borrowed one of their T-shirts and, you know, went. And I ended up winning the heat that I was in. And then I won the semi-final, and then I came second in the final. But they took me to the national final anyway. And yeah, that sort of—I just started in Brisbane and kept going from there. Coming up after the break, how becoming a father changed the way Matt looks back on his childhood. But first, a word from our wonderful sponsor. Matt, in 2012, you won the award for Best Newcomer at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Does winning awards mean a lot to you? Because it would mean a lot to me if I'm not a comedian, but awards mean something to me and I think people should be incredibly proud of them. Did you take that as an indication that you're really on the right path? Oh, man, I wanted that award so bad. Uh, I, I, you know, and uh, comedians, comedians and uh, are all are real cool, and they're all like, oh, you know, whatever it doesn't matter. It's all industry and blah blah blah. I love awards. All right, <laughs> I love awards. I love being nominated for awards. I love winning awards. I like finding out who's won awards if I'm not involved. I love awards. All right. I'm very, very proud of all the awards I've won. I love them so How's much. The drop? Michelle, you've only mentioned one award, but if you didn't know, there's heaps more on the list. <laughs> Should we roll through them? We'll get a list. We'll put a list in the show notes. I can tell you right now, every single one of them, I'm so I'm really proud of them because some of them I worked really, really hard to get. That Melbourne that that best newcomer award, I you know, Melbourne goes for a month and you gauge what people don't, I guess, realize about it is it's not awards mean so much more than just having a single best product. You know, it's about a full campaign. It's about what your whole year looks like. It's about what, what it means for the future. You know, they're, they're, they're chosen by big groups of people who all have to agree that you are the best prospect for this thing on one, in one time. And so, I, I'd been lagging behind Ronnie Chang that whole year. It was 2012 and he was selling out show after show, putting on shows in extra rooms, huge rooms for us, you know, and, and I was, I was doing shows to like 12, 13 people and I was struggling. I was, I was smashing the booze so hard every night and like, and just running myself into the ground and crawling on stage the next night and, you know, performing my show to these sort of half full crowds. And I really was getting down on myself about, you know, I knew I had a shot at this award, but I just knew Ronnie was, was going. And that's, I guess, I remember this, there was this moment when I realized that I still had a chance and that was, I, I, that, that's been a really big tipping point for me in my career in that I'd felt I'd missed out on it, that Ronnie was going to win this award. Everyone was talking about him, all that sort of stuff. But there was still about a week to go with the festival. And I remember thinking that it, 
realizing that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And that, that is literally, as an artist, you think it's a sprint. It's so easy to think it's a sprint. You know, you graduate from drama school and you want to be straight on TV. You want to be in a movie. You want to, you know, anytime, any kid who starts stand up comedy suddenly is like, why aren't I getting a spot on TV? Why aren't I doing this? Someone picks up a microphone for radio next minute. Oh, why aren't I on the breakfast show? Why aren't I do this? Everyone thinks they deserve the, the shot like straight away. And I remember thinking, okay, it's not, it's, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Don't stress out. He's 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 ahead now. It's fine. He's doing some really good stuff. You don't worry about him. Just worry about making your show better. And that's I've lived by that mantra a lot ever since. That it's not a competition. That it's not it's not about who finishes the marathon first. It's like it's about finishing the marathon. Really, it's like if you finish it, you did you succeeded. You won in a way because we're not competing against each other. So I stopped worrying about how well Ronnie was selling and how good his show was. And I just changed some of the things in my show that I knew deep down weren't great. And one of those things was honesty. And this is where a big tipping point came with me as well. And you talked about it with Celia, Celia the other day. But, you know, I read a two-star review that had said that I was kind of touching on things about my mum's death, but I just it was just really surface-level stuff. And if I was really wanting to talk about it, you either go there or you don't. Don't sort of sit halfway. And I remember getting really angry with this review and thinking, oh, you don't know anything. You want to know what it was actually like to go through that as a 12-year-old? Well, then fine, I'll put the sort of the harsher realities of it in this comedy show. And uh, they're not funny, but they're just true. And that's just how that's, these are some of the hardest things I've had to deal with. And um, I put all those things in the show and I made the show better. And then it happened to be the week where judges started coming and people started audience started building and there was a few good reviews that came in and then and then yeah I just through that momentum of actually changing and getting making my show better I caught up and we ended up sharing the uh sharing the award how good you did go on then after that to host triple j breakfast with alex dyson and i think I don't think it's an overstatement to say that what you two created in that spot was pretty iconic and pretty special. People were in love with what you two created every morning. Did you know that you were onto something special at the time? I always knew that Alex and I had a good chemistry. I got a call from Triple J and they said, you know, is this something you'd like to do, host this breakfast show? And I kind of was a bit unsure. I felt old, to be completely honest. I was 29 (laughs) years old. I was like, Man, like the people I was taking over from, you know, Tom was like 22 or something, you know, and I was like, I've, I've missed that chance. So I'd actually let it, let it go in my head. But I remember stepping into a studio like the one I'm in right now with Alex and he just said, you know, and we stepped in with our program director at the time, Ollie Wards, and he, and Alex sort of said, you know, how's your day been? I said, oh, I've just driven back from Canberra for this. And he sort of said, oh, you know, what was that like? And I was like, oh, it's good. But this happened this other time I was driving. And he's like, oh, that blah, blah, blah. And we end up just talking. And then we, and then Alex, we finished talking and Alex is like, all right, well, let's, you know, start recording. And, and Ollie Wards was like, what the, what the hell, man? You weren't recording that? And Alex was like, no, we were just having a chat. And he's like, oh, man, you always record. That was so good, you know. And so from that point on, it was it's kind of been effortless with Alex and I when it comes to chatting. In terms of what, how the show developed and, and, you know, became popular or, or, or well-known or well-received, I, I don't know. I, I don't think we ever stopped just doing doing what we liked doing and that sort of the, another mantra that I've always lived by, just if I don't like it, then I can't expect someone else to like it. So I just got to do the things that I like and hope other people like them too. 
I love that. I think that's great to live by. Talk to us about the brutal nature of the job, because I think some of the uglier aspects of working in the media were exposed when you and Alex did leave your slot and Ben and Liam filled it. And Ben and Liam were trolled mercilessly for their show originally to the point where they actually came out and spoke about it for Are You OK Day? And I wonder, you seem to be a very emotionally intelligent guy and very switched on. How did it feel for you and Alex to be on the sidelines and watching that unravel with two guys that you seem to really admire? Yeah, it was a tough one, wasn't it? I mean, in some way, you it's just like a rite of passage when you start your first national gig. I mean, they they, they got it hard, but, you know, no one saw some of the messages I was getting when I was on my first TV show at Thursday FC on SBS that got panned and people hated me. People hated me so much. And it was just so, I got terrible reviews. Like people would always write and soccer fans are so, they're such assholes, you know? And so, <laughs> no, they're such dickheads. Oh my God. I mean, not every one of them, but so many of them are just not dickhead. all soccer fans. Self-loathing <laughs> Honestly, the fans are half the reason why this, why soccer sucks in Australia. Honestly, <laughs> they, they can't. You can't do anything without some whinging ass fan complaining about how shit this. Oh, this is blah, 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 just whinges. <laughs> Have a bit of positivity for God's sake. Anyways. This is not the rant I envisaged. Just oh going man. Anyway, so look. So, <laughs> so look, it, 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 I, I completely understood what it was like, and it would have been really tough. I guess I'd pre- I'd been prepared for that kind of backlash before and I had a really safe landing pad with Dyson next to me who was already really loved. So there was lots of backlash and that, but as as an onlooker, I, I just knew that it was going to build those guys to be bigger and better. It always does. So they probably had to go through it a little bit harder and a little bit sort of faster than most do, but... I mean, I look at them now and they're, they're incredible. You know, I just think they're so good. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I have no right to be, but I'm extremely proud of how well they've gotten through all of that. And then now are on the other side, killing it. Mm. I noticed that in the opening to your bit at the 2017 Melbourne International Comedy Festival that you did decide to talk about changing the date of Australia Day. And I guess, Mission, I wondered, is being political in your comedy and just generally like a very conscious decision for you or is it kind of just imbued in your nature that you feel that it wouldn't be worth doing work if you didn't kind of stand up for something every so often? I enjoy making statements but I do it in a subtle way. I sneak up on people, I guess. I, I've always seen people, I mean, there are people on the front line when it comes to like a war on, on changing negative opinions like the world, you know, for the better. There are people on the front line who really, who just charge, who come out with guns blazing and just fire at everyone and anything that's... um you know, doing the wrong thing or whatever. And it's really important to have those people in when, when there is a war on, on bigotry and inequality. It's really important to have those people on the front line. And you know those people, they're people in the media, they're, they're big time people in the media who, who are always in fights, who are always defending their actions, they're blah, blah, blah. There's, and they, they come from both sides. Uh, that's, that's not me, but it's important to know that you can't win a war by having everyone on the front line. There has to be people who hang at the back 
and who there has to be spies. There has to be, you know, people who clean the toilets in the mess hall afterwards. Like there's so, there's so everyone can contribute to winning a, a war on equality that you don't have to be in a Twitter fight every 10 seconds to do it. So I've just taken a backseat approach in that I go by trust more than by force. I prefer to win people over with similar views on a lot of things and then go, hey, look, we all think about potatoes the same and about driving the same and about filling up petrol the same. And also I hope you don't hate me because I'm brown and other people because they're brown and other people because they're, you know, gay or, or whatever. So let's all like the same stuff. You know, that's kind of my method more than um, than going, you, this is the wrong tweet. You'd said the wrong thing once. You know, let's cancel you. Well, I think what I appreciate about your approach is that there's not much division there either in that you kind of, as you said, you creep up on people and I think perhaps laughter and comedy is the best way to do that. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I do actually. I think when people are having a good time, they're letting their guard down and you know, it doesn't matter how doesn't matter how hardcore you are or anything. If you're if you're laughing, you you're showing quite a bit of vulnerability. So, there's definitely opportunities in those moments to not even say, "Hey, you need to change," but just a bit of a never think about what it might be like on the other side, you know? so that they can sort of step back. Because I find there's a lot of people who are standing on the good side, the right side of uh, society, morals and stuff, and demanding people to get over onto their side. Why aren't you over here? But it's there is a river in between and you, you do need to reach out and and help people cross over more than just get angry at them for not being on your side. You did kind of touch on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to ask you about becoming a dad. How has that changed your life? Um, you know, I was yelling stuff like just today. I never thought I'd say things like, no, lift your chin. You have curry in your neck. You know, so <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Didn't think I'd be doing that. Um, it's really, I, I just love her so much. I just can't, I cannot express how much I love this little person and how happy she makes me. And it's also, you know, opened up my eyes a lot to what my parents must have been like and what, you know, I was, I became a dad when I was writing the book and, you know, it really added an, a whole other layer of what, you know, the perspective of, of the parents in that, in my book, what it meant to be a parent, what it meant to be a parent that was dying, that was going to leave a child behind because, the thought of that really upsets me and I don't think I'd ever really thought about it from my mum's point of view as much before until I had a daughter and realised just how all the little moments, all the photos, all these things, you know, we, we don't even, you know, you, you just, you don't realise that you were that little person that they doted on for hours and days and months and years, you know, you just you just sort of, you're just this me, me, me kind of thing once you once you become a sort of aware child. So, yeah, to get that sort of perspective has been really invaluable. And yeah, and I and I just I just I love being a dad. I love wanting to be a good person for my daughter. Uh, wanting to be a good male role model. I want to have a really good connection with her to sort of 
be involved in her life as much as possible. So yeah, it's changed me in so many ways, but all all really good ways, I think. I'm curious. I mean, we've been doing these in isolation episodes. We're all in different areas right now. The world is starting to go back a little bit to normal or we're starting to have like little morsels of normalcy in everyday life. And I wonder, what are you most excited for when this all ends and people can gather together again? What are you excited for? I really love traveling. My partner and I got a bit sad about not having to, not being able to travel recently. I do love traveling. I don't know if it'll ever be the same. And I'm really glad, thankful to have had the opportunity to. I'm in a, I'm in a bit of a situation where I am quite thankful that all this happened. And I don't mean that in the sickness and death situation, obviously. And this has been a really tough time for a lot of people, which is why it's kind of weird because. I have liked it and it's you, you're not allowed to sort of, you know, the, you're not allowed to talk about The people who have actually liked this whole situation have not are not really allowed to talk about it because of all the terrible things that are associated with it. But if it was a, on a personal note for me, the restrictions, I was supposed to be in Melbourne Comedy Festival every single night, you know, this last month and I was in Fiji when they made the restrictions so that you had to spend two weeks inside your house when you got home. And so me and my partner did that. So instead of going out and touring and doing gigs every night, me and my partner and my daughter spent two weeks in our apartment together and we bought fake grass off the internet and an inflatable pool and we put them out on our little balcony and we got groceries delivered and we got meals delivered and we hung out with each other every single night for two weeks. And then you know, I cancelled all all the gigs got cancelled, and so I hired an office like directly across the road from where I live. Just like it's like this shitty room; it's a box, and I put some recording stuff in there. And I started developing TV show ideas that I'd always wanted to make. And I started wanting to put together a, a you know make some more music, which I haven't done in ages, and meaningful content to me that I've always wanted to do that I had never had time for. And, you know, I'm home every single night with my daughter and we have dinner together. And I I just, I've really liked it. It's opened up a whole new world for me to realize that there's a life outside of going to pubs every night and talking over the echo of poker machines in the background. So like, you know, and it's and, and for me, it's been really meaningful content that I've made. There seems to be a lot of panic content that happened in the sort of wake of this, which is, I kind of really, I find really frustrating at times because I think it does diminish in a way the value of good work, of good art. Mm-hmm. And so, but then I don't blame anyone for doing anything, you know, if you got to do, you got to do what you got to do to get by. But yeah, a real part of me wishes we'd just starved the world of content for a while instead of trying so desperately to make anything, you know, viewable because, I think it would have put a bit more appreciation into into what we do as artists. So, yeah, I've liked it. I've actually liked it. <laughs> I feel like that might then lead into my next question because what does success mean to you and how do you define success with all of this in mind? I mean, I used to think that success was, you know, having the most tickets sold and the biggest house and all that sort of stuff. And the more I'm realising it, it's like I love – 
looking at houses on like domain or whatever and looking at big mansions and all that sort of stuff. It's just that that's what I really do to pass my time. I'm not I know I'm not it a It literally consumer. sounds like you're inside our group chat. Mine and Zara's <laughs> chat to each other is just realestate.com links to each yeah, other that we'll I never love be able it. to afford. I love it. I think about you know packing it all up, moving to some quiet apartment on the Gold Coast. You know, I, I am realizing more and more it's like it doesn't matter how nice your house is because you still have to live in your head. And so it just, for me, success is being content. And the more I'm in this, the more I'm realizing that 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 is completely within me and has nothing to do with anyone else. I used to think that's being successful when I was, when I was living in a share house of four of us in Chippendale and the place was a, a dump, you know, it looked like a cracked end day in day out. And we were partying all the time and just waking up feeling gross and I used to think oh you know if I can make enough money from comedy to just make a little bit of music on the side I'll just then I'll have made it you know and then that happens and then you know you just want more Mm. and so I'm constantly having to remind myself that I'm successful now and this by by all accounts the material things that I own aside the life that I have and my the people the relationships that I have with my family and my partner and my daughter and my friends as well as having a roof over my head that I like and, you know, food that I enjoy, by all accounts, I'm successful. So I just have to, it's just, a, again, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. There's no end goal. I've just got to, I just got to get to the end of my life and know that I was still in the race. I think that is such a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us. You are so generous with your time and your insights and Zara and I, and I'm sure everyone listening to this are so incredibly grateful. No, thanks so much for having me. It's really awesome to be a part of your show. Congrats on all your successes as well. I've got, um, I mean, I'm a fan, but I've got some some friends of mine. They do a podcast called Wine Chats and they they are just, you are, you know, yeah, I love you. So, so, um, so no, it's really awesome to be a part of it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this In Isolation episode of Shameless with Matt O'Kine. If you want more from Matt, which of course you do, there is one key way for you to do that right now. Go and download his new podcast. It is called All Day Breakfast. He does it, of course, with his mate Alex Dyson, and it is so bloody good. It's such a fun time to listen to. If you're on Apple, hit subscribe to their podcast. If you're on Spotify, hit follow. You can also, of course, find Matt on Instagram at Matt O'Kine. As for us, well, you can find Zara and I in our book club Facebook group. Just search Shameless Podcast Book Club on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. The number one way to help us out and to spread the word of our show is to actually tell a friend. If you have a friend who isn't really into podcasts, please send them a link to this episode or any episode of Shameless that you have loved and that will really help spread the word for us. It's the number one way that we grow. So thank you so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Monday with a wrap in the week that was in pop culture. Bye. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast style-ish Stylish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. 
It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.